This is Chapter 2 of The City on the Heights. To listen from the beginning of the book, start with the episode titled The Explosion. Stephen, The Beginning, April 3rd, 2013, Washington, D.C. When Stephen Gold was five years old, his parents had brought him to a Phoenix Suns playoff game. It was a big year for the Suns. They made it to the NBA Finals. The excitement in the Memorial Coliseum was something Stephen would never forget. The place was bursting with light. The crowds, made up of people who had so little in common with one another, were united in support of their team. There was a fellowship there. And then the game was over. The crowds filed out of the Coliseum that night, excited by the victory, and then they were thrust into the cool darkness of the night. As they went their separate ways, they tore at the bond that had held them together during the game itself. Stephen and his parents embarked on a longer walk than most. Officially, they disliked the traffic that slowed those who parked near the Coliseum. But, unofficially, they were cheap and didn't want to pay for parking. The neighborhood they parked in was filled with large warehouses. Before long, the last of their companions from the game drifted towards vehicles parked in other spots. Before long, they were almost entirely alone. As they walked, the streetlights lit the sidewalks unevenly. The city seemed to darken, and Stephen's parents instinctively shifted to a close and protective formation. Stephen felt their fear, peering out from between them. As they walked, Stephen noticed a misshapen lump lying next to one of the warehouses. At first, he thought it was simply a shadow, cast by the rickety-looking warehouse that rose above it. But as they drew closer, Stephen realized it was not a shadow, but a woman, and his parents were ignoring her. But Stephen couldn't. So, as they passed, Stephen chanced to glance at her. She was young, probably a teenager. She was wearing layers of old and tattered clothing. A smell wafted from her body, and her eyes were open and unblinking. Stephen realized with horror that she was dead. He didn't remember what happened next, but he did remember that, later, his father said the woman was homeless and had probably been crazy. He cursed the mental health system that was releasing the ill from long-term hospitalization. When he was much older, Stephen realized that his father had been trying to create distance from the dead woman and her circumstances. Stephen's father wanted to blame her death on something, something that didn't apply to him or his family. But Stephen wasn't like that. Instead of drawing away from the woman, he was drawn to her. If he could feel kinship with strangers at a basketball game, why not a woman lying on the street? Of course, he didn't know her. But as he kept remembering that evening, she developed in his mind. She became a victim. She became somebody who didn't need to die. As Stephen imagined it, if others had drawn close to her, instead of being repelled, she wouldn't have ended up where she had. That woman, who he'd never met, defined Stephen's life. It started slowly at first. Stephen would reach out to the ostracized kids in the playground, but it snowballed as he grew older. Stephen became the one who, even in high school, would invite street people over for dinner. He believed you could unlock the goodness in almost anybody. You just needed to understand them, instead of running away from them. His parents tried to set boundaries, but that wasn't his way. They told him he needed distance in order to truly help those in need. But as he saw it, they were intellectuals, and they used their ideas to excuse their inaction. Failing to help, not at Stephen, 
He needed to restore those who had no one else to turn to. He needed to bring life back to the eyes of that homeless woman on a Phoenix street. So, when he was 19, Stephen joined the Jewish Union of Charities. He joined, and he never left. At first, he worked directly with those in need. It was intensely rewarding. He drifted away from his parents as his involvement deepened. But before long, he realized that some of what his parents claimed was true. He could help so many more people from a position of greater responsibility and power. Reluctantly, he began to see how ideas and organization could be as important as personal interactions. He applied for and joined the management of his local JUC. At first, he hated the fluorescent lights, the ticking clocks, and the unending meetings, but he came to know that this was where the real opportunities lay. He learned to find satisfaction, not through his personal efforts to help those in need, but from reports on the impact of the JUC across his region. Instead of finding joy in the faces of those desperate for help and human support, he found it in the faces of his staff. He helped them help others and saw success through their achievements. Slowly, Stephen climbed the ranks of the JUC. He was a truly gifted administrator. He inspired his people, and he helped them to inspire themselves. He met his wife there. She, like so many others, had been drawn to his dedication. Finally, 27 years after joining the JUC, Stephen Gold was offered membership on the National Executive Committee of the Jewish Union of Charities. The night before his new role officially started, an energetic wisp of a woman came to his home. She introduced herself in a clean American accent as the chief of staff to the Israeli ambassador. Her name was Tamar Rothstein. They had coffee together in his living room, and Stephen realized the responsibilities of his new role were no longer just local or regional. They were international. While the thought burdened him, it also inspired him. The opportunities were immense. The next morning, as Stephen was still getting his computer account set up at work, a man had come to see him. He wasn't Israeli or even Jewish. He was African, and he was lobbying for refugees from the Lake Chad region. Stephen wasn't a politician, but the man figured he might eventually earn the ears of politicians. This went beyond the dreams he'd had. Stephen's responsibilities had always extended a little beyond the parochial needs of the Jewish community. But this was something entirely different. It was what he'd worked so hard to achieve. The executive committee met daily, and so, soon after his email was set up, Stephen set off for his first meeting. He was the first to arrive. As Stephen watched the other members of the committee arrive, he struggled to contain his excitement. The lighting in the room was harsh, the clocks ticking incessant, and the coffee poor. But he knew the people were superb. Each and every member of the committee was an accomplished community leader. Together, they could do tremendous things. The director of the JUC, a black-haired woman with sharp eyes and a reputation for even sharper elbows, called the meeting to order. The committee meeting started like so many others. Stephen was introduced, and then he contributed as he could. But mostly, he listened. They discussed financial issues, they discussed various programs, and then, eventually, they got to a topic the Southwest Regional JUC would never have discussed, the war in Syria. Stephen watched as the conversation flowed around the room. He watched as proposals were floated and debated. Some suggested lobbying to bring more refugees into the United States. Others suggested aid to refugee camps. Stephen suggested sending JUC representatives to work in the camps themselves. 
He suggested reaching out directly to help those in need. But as the conversation continued, Stephen realized his joy was being replaced by something else. He realized that nobody was attacking the core of the problem. Nobody was helping those caught in the war zone. Instead, they were dancing around the problems, speaking to symptoms instead of fundamental needs. And he was no exception. At a pause in the conversation, Stephen asked, Can't we fix anything ourselves? Maybe these people, these assembled experts, could find a way to do more. Fix? asked a man named Ethan Conan. He was a 20-something social media coordinator. I don't know, said Stephen. We keep seeing these wars. Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Egypt, Yemen. I know most of the people fleeing Syria belong to ethnic groups that have decided to engage in ethnic conflict. So I know they aren't just innocents. But can't we somehow interrupt their decision to fight? Can we stop just trying to deal with the war's exports and deal with the social problems that lie at the core of the conflicts? He was met with blank stares. We studied genocide, said Rachel Samuelson, a specialist in genocide prevention, so we can spot the warning signs and can get the international community involved in preventing the worst. But does it work, said Stephen. Have we actually stopped genocides? Have we fixed what's wrong in these societies? Fixed? Rachel asked, almost confused. What do you mean? Have we tried to change Arab society? Stephen asked. He realized as soon as he opened his mouth how horrible that sounded. Ethan looked at him, almost stunned. Uh, Stephen, Kipling's been dead a long while now. It isn't our job to bring civilization to the savages. Stephen backed off immediately. I wasn't suggesting that. I just thought maybe we could do something other than accept the breakdown of their societies. The table went silent. The director spoke up. It isn't our mission to change other cultures. In fact, we shouldn't do so. We just help those in need. But the whole Arab world is in need, said Stephen. And we work on culture all the time. We try to change our own communities. We may be subtle about it, but we try to improve on the values many of our communities hold. Why not do it here? You want to send in social workers? Asked Rachel incredulously. Maybe we could send in your genocide experts, said Stephen. Maybe they could talk people down. I don't know. That isn't what they do, said Rachel. They study what's occurred and they work with world leaders to help spot the signs and prevent the next big catastrophe. Stephen felt like he was going in circles. Question for me is simple at least. Is there anything we can do to strike at the causes of these wars? Can we repair the problems that are causing so much pain? Can we repair the problems that are causing so much pain? Nobody said anything. Stephen continued, Have you seen the beheadings? Have you seen the protesters shot down by snipers? Isn't there something we can do to help? Stephen was almost desperate as he looked around at the committee members. They were the best and the brightest and the most capable. They were good people, all of them, and they had nothing to offer. They were doing what his father had done. They were distancing themselves from the suffering. But Stephen couldn't do that. The silence extended. Eventually, the director announced, We'll table this discussion for now. As the meeting continued, Stephen felt a hopeless lethargy growing within him. When the meeting finally ended, he rose from his seat and walked from his office to the parking lot below. His excitement had completely vanished. As he got into his car and started to drive, Stephen felt like a kid again, crying as he realized the dead woman on the Phoenix Street 
was beyond help. He realized that, even though he could find his way to his new home, he was completely lost. This is Joseph Cox, author of The City on the Heights. The City on the Heights podcast is free, but you can still help the project. First, you can buy the book on cityontheheights.com. It is only $3.99 for the Kindle edition and $16.99 for a beautiful physical copy. This is a great way to get ahead in the plot in case you want to know what happens next before the podcast gets there. Second, and more importantly, you can share this podcast with others. Thank you for listening to The City on the Heights.